Good evening, everybody. It is great to see everyone who's with us tonight. We have a great crowd, and I'm looking forward to our study together to share with you some of the things I've been studying and some of the things that are challenging me today as I uh, was studying through these again. Uh, I, every time I give this lesson, every time I go back through this, I, look, I just look down at my shoes and I'm like, man, I, have, I need to get on this again. I need to be working on these things because it always challenges me. It always shows me how much better I need to be, especially in the context of what these verses are going to say. In 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7, if you'll turn with me there, is where we're going to begin our reading. And we're going to spend a lot of time just in this chapter. Uh, we will take a couple of tangents, but everything is going to be based off the things we're talking about right here in 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7. Let's start off and read the first few verses. It says, beginning in verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to go back to this slide real quick. One of the things I highlighted here is how many times it says one another. Everything we're going to talk about is really centered around that. Around that first verse that he says, the end of all things is at hand. And the thing we're going to do with that is we're going to look to one another and we're going to look to help one another. So he said that first. He started out all, these, all the things we talked about by saying the end of all things is at hand, therefore. This is a hard, harsh reality. He tells us that the end of everything is near. What does that mean? We know that the end of all things is near because of first, because of Jesus' return. We're told that Jesus' return can happen at any moment. Matthew 24, verse 36 through 39 says, But of that day and hour when Jesus will return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Going on to verse 39, And did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what he just showed us right here is that when Jesus come back, comes back, it's going to be like something that already happened. And we have to look back into, into the past as some real events that happened. And he threw us back to Noah. This story of Noah and, and, uh, and the destruction of the world is often told in children's stories or uh, children's books that show the boat and the animals and the rainbow. And it's great. And it's, it's an amazing story of how God saved his people in an extraordinary way. And, and cleansed the earth. But the side of that that's really scary is what happened to everyone who was wiped out. There was, I believe, eight souls were saved. That means the rest of the world died in a very scary way. And he tries to draw us back to this in the verses we were just uh, looking at because he's showing us that, okay, this has happened before. It's going to be just like that in the resurrection. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a very similar situation where it's going to be great for a lot of people, 
But it's going to be very scary for all those who didn't. And it's going to be in a very similar way. It says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He went around telling people. He went around living his life, building this boat. People would ask him probably, what are you building a boat for? What are you doing? And he would tell them, I'm sure, there's going to be a flood one day. God's going to destroy the earth. Change your life. But they laughed at him, obviously, because no one else joined him. For a hundred years, it took him to build that boat. Can you imagine what it was like to be him? To be his kids. Everyone laughing at you. Who's this crazy man who's building this boat? But then that day came, and it all, everything changed. Then no one was laughing at Noah. The same picture is drawn for us now. We're living in a world where a lot of people don't believe in this, this coming again of Jesus. And he said, it's going to be just like that. Where you have this mass delusion that no one knows what's really coming, even though it's clear. He's, there's people here standing for the truth that say this is coming. And he says, it's going to be just like that. So Jesus, said, so Jesus tells us the end is near. And that is one way we can know that the end of all things is at hand. Secondly, well, first before we move on, I just looked at this picture because I wanted to, to see for myself and maybe have us look at it together what that might have looked like. Because I just, I've seen pictures before like this and I, I need to stop and think, what if those are my friends from school that are, what if that's Spencer? And what if that's Megan? And what if that's Caden? What about some of your friends you know? What if you insert them here? How scary that will be for them and how scary it will be for us as their friends to know that this might happen to some of our friends. It's a perspective we need to have on this whole situation, on the whole resurrection, on the whole coming again of Jesus, so, so that we can take seriously what he's about to say. Okay, so secondly, the end of all things is at hand because of death. Okay, I'm sorry, one more pause. Uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So we might say, you know what? God hasn't come again yet. It's taken a while. He said it's near. What do you, how do you reconcile that? The end of all things is near. It's been a couple thousand years. Here it tells us that God doesn't count time like we do. God doesn't see it the same. One, because he's an eternal being, if you're not affected by time like we are, if we're not affected, if God's not affected by wrinkles and slow bowel movements and all the other things that just beat us down, he's not affected by time like we are. But the way God sees time as he sees it as in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what God sees in time is not the, the wear and tear of, of his body. He's, all he sees as, is an opportunity for more people to come back to him. So the, the argument that God hasn't come, you know, how can you say the end is near? That's kind of irrelevant with God's eternal perspective. Okay, now we're going to go to, now we're to death. So the other way that the end is near is because of death. And I didn't have this plan before what we, the news we got today, that Kobe Bryant was killed in, in, in a helicopter accident. He was 41 years old. How many people can you think back on your life that you heard of people who died, that you, that you knew of people that died, that it just felt, it felt weird? It shouldn't have happened. That's not how narratives go. That's not how anything was supposed to happen. He had a family. He had so much ahead of him. But gone like that. We never know what's going to happen. 
buddy from mine back at Oakdale, uh, Ty Jones, was one of my great friends all my life. You never, I never would have thought something would happen to him. He was healthy. We, we were very similar in our lifestyle. It wasn't like anything should have been wrong. He got sick, and, he, and a month later, he passed away. The end can come at any time. And so we need to be serious and listen to the things he's going to tell us. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment. So to make this a little more real, what happens when we die is we're judged. And we learn from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that there is a separation that happens at death. <clears throat> the rich man, when he died, went to torments. And the, uh, Lazarus, when he died, the poor man, he went to paradise. And it says that in between those two places, there's a great gulf fixed that you can't pass between. So what happens when we die, we go to one or the other. And those are just waiting areas, waiting rooms, for when we go to our final resting place. And if you're in paradise, your final resting place is already decided it's heaven. If you're in torments, your final resting place is decided it's hell. And for me, that helps me just think about how real it is because we don't talk about this. And if something's out of sight or out of thought, it's out of mind. This is real. This is right on the other side of a car accident. This is right on the other side of anything tragic that might happen. We need to know about it, be ready for it. And this is, this is a scary thought. When you compare this to what he's going to say in just a minute in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's a scary thought. That, to know that, that the end is near and all this is happening, I need to be concerned about that, and that there's someone opposing me, there's someone who wants me to go down a bad path to where I will be condemned. That's a scary thought. But what is fear? Fear is a natural reaction to danger that causes you to make some sort of action, to respond in a certain way. So what do we do with that fear? That fear is healthy. That fear is fine. That's why he goes on to say what's next. He doesn't just leave it with an empty worry about this. He says, therefore, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. His first instruction is to our prayers. And this is the, probably the first thing I always think about when I give this lesson is how much I need my prayer life more. How much, if I really want to be with God, why don't I start talking to him like he's here with me now, like he says he is? Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11 talks a little, about, talks a little bit about this prayer so we can see the value of it. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. He's, like, he's, saying, he's only listing great things that comes from this. He says, or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Of course not. Nobody does that. Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He said, when we, when we need something, when we come to, you know, we start our morning and there's something that comes in our way, something we didn't expect, talk to God about it. He, he shows us in every angle. He says, ask and I'll give. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open to you. How many more angles do I have to say it, he says. He will take care of us. Why, why don't we want that? I think part of it, 
part of it is because of a Satan, how, how Satan wants us to lose sight of these beautiful truths. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 and 4, it says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's what I'm trying to get at is the simplicity and the power of prayer is something that's clear, but our lives get complicated and Satan kind of wants us to see it as complicated and not just fuzzy and, and the simplicity that's in Christ. That's what we should see in this prayer life. God says, I'll take care of you. Ask me and I'll give to you. For he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. That's what happens to me. I lose a perspective on God, a perspective on the way God responds to my prayers, the way God sees my prayers, that I put up with it. I don't have to put up with that. And Satan wants me to see prayer and see God as kind of an afterthought and to see him as kind of like a, something I can put in my back pocket for later. But he said, he's kind of getting at, don't be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. There's a beautiful truth that is in talking to God and having that relationship there. And Peter is telling us this as he's writing this letter. He's telling us this from personal experience. Because in Matthew 26, verse 40 and 41, it reads, Then he came to his disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think I made a mention about this scripture before, how Peter's connection to this passage is powerful because this is exactly what Jesus told him to do. Watch and pray. Pay attention. It's serious. This is a big deal. And his, his life spiraled from there. He just broke down. He made mistake after mistake. And so Peter, on the other side of this, understands that. He understands the value of prayer and talking to God and being aware of everything like this. And he says, be serious and watchful in prayer. That's our first instruction. Instruction number two Going on in verse 8, he says, And above all things, more than anything else, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. This phrase, fervent love, uh, this word fervent, I, as I understand from ancient times, was used to describe a horse running at full gallop, stretching and straining its muscles as it ran across the battlefield. Do we love like that? Do I love like that? That stretching, that straining. Maybe that straining for you comes at the end of a long day when you just have had enough and you don't really want to deal with anything else. You're stretching and you're straining in your effort to love. That's what he commands of us. If we're going to live like there's no tomorrow, if we're going to live like this is the last day we have, his first above all preeminent instruction is above all things have fervent love for one another. And he says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And this is in contrast to what happens with hatred. Proverbs 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. The person who wants to take care of somebody and protect them and shelter with love, that, that love covers them. It doesn't want to light people up and say, Hey, look at everyone, look what he did to me. This guy wronged me. No, it wants to cover. It wants to restore. It wants to make right. Let's have a, a love that will... Cover and have an attitude of fervent love toward others. Next, in verse 9, he tells us to be hospitable. The third thing, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. 
How do you live like there's no tomorrow? You take care of other people. You get outside yourself. You look to others because this will be your support system for one. And the way to truly invest in people, the way to truly live a fulfilled life is to help others and look out for the needs of others. And this hospitality, you know, when I, before I had my own place and stuff, I would read this and I'd wonder, how do I see this if I, if I don't have in my own house to be hospital? Maybe some of you don't if you're younger. That, hospital, that hospitality is something you can develop at any point in your life. It's an attitude of hospitality. It's an attitude of taking care of people. You, you have a hospitable person takes what they have and welcomes other people in and uses what they have to serve. You can do that at school. You have a friend group. You have a lunch table. You have whatever it is. What do you use your space for, your little bubble for? Do you use it to welcome and bring people in? Or do you use it as kind of a, this is mine, I want to do my own thing? Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. This second part is sometimes you can do the, the hospitality, but you can negate what you're doing by a bad attitude because, you know, so-and-so did this, and that frustrated me because it was my stuff and my place. And he says, do it without grumbling. In light of the fact that the end is near, it's not that big of a deal. Let's take care of each other and look out for the needs of others. In verse 10, he goes on to say, fourthly, to, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The fourth thing we do in light of the fact that the end is near is we use what God has given us to serve others. Similar to the note on hospitality. But to realize that these are gifts we have. Everything we own is a gift. Yeah, well, it's my abilities to earn this gift. Who gave you the abilities to earn that money to have what you have? That's God. Everything we have is a gift in one way or another. He says to use it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The parable, the parable of the steward rips into us when it shows us how much we fail in that. God's given us all this, and we look at it like it's ours, but it's not. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The fifth thing in 1 Peter 4 verse 11, in light of the fact that the end is near, he says if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. It's covering everything we do. It's covering our actions. It covers our stuff. It covers the way we talk to God. And he says, if you're going to talk, open your mouth for God. Speak on behalf of God and speak things God would want you to say. That's an amazing thought to me that we can speak on behalf of God. We are, we are, uh, we are God's ambassadors here, we're told in another scripture. That's an honor. We get to speak on behalf of God and be a part of something great, a part of something special. And we have the ability. God would not give us anything we can't do. He's given us his word. We're able to study it tonight. We can take a little bit tonight and move forward with this knowledge to share with somebody. With this awareness to share with somebody. We have the honor and the ability to speak for God. 1 Peter 4 verse 12. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and, and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You could look at this passage and say, if anyone ministers, let him do it. And, and the focus on the ministering, but I think everything he's talked about has already been ministering. And the thing that jumps out at, at me with this verse is the note as with the ability which God supplies. That everything we do, we realize what's happening right now. We're using abilities God has given us. And to me, that gives me joy in my heart to know that the things I'm doing have value. 
and they have meaning. And I can really know that the things I'm doing today are in direct relationship to the way God is influencing my life. That's exciting. That's powerful. That takes you out of depression if you're, if, if you're feeling like, man, my life isn't, I'm just not worth anything. That truth alone can help you lift your spirit. And it's also going to help us cre- keep the credit where credit is due. Because God deserves the glory for any good we do, as we've already said. And it must be a hard job being God. Because if any of us do one little thing, we just want all the credit for it. And if we don't get the credit for it, we are rubbed raw, man. I know that's, speaking for myself, that's an area I'm weak in is, you know, if you don't get recognized for something you did. Or if you, you know, someone talks down on something you did, it just feels wrong. Like you were trying to serve and you get talked about in a bad way. Imagine how God feels. God created the world that we're walking on. God created everything about us, gave us everything we have, and yet somehow he doesn't get the credit for everything he did. If God gets any credit, it's just a tiny morsel of what he deserves. And doing everything we do and serving others with the attitude that this is from God, let me serve you with what God has supplied me, will help us give the credit where credit is due. He goes on to say in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 through 14, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and a God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. So one of the last things he says in this note is to flip things around in your mind. If If we suffer for God, awesome. The tough stuff is the best. Because that means we are tied to something in a way that's, we can't buy that. You can't get that anywhere else but through the hard things you deal with if they're for God. And specifically, as he talks about here, partaking in Christ's sufferings, he says be excited about that. Because the tough things are a shortcut to greatness. They're they're an avenue to greatness. It's hard to do all your own little things and, and build your way up to heaven. You can't do that. But God makes a way for you to face trial and for you to overcome and to serve him through it. That is able to bring us, he says, a spirit of glory and of God resting upon us. Whoa. That's awesome. In closing, he says some words at the end of chapter 5 that I feel like really help bring all this together all this together, and, and summarize it and make me feel good after all the things we've understood and things we now know. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you, all your care. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You're not the only one. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you.
To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. For me, my favorite part of that verse is the settling. I think it's by nature some of the things you know, young people have is they need to settle down. A lot of times adults tell young people, settle down, settle down. And that part of the faith, that where your faith grows to the point where you can be established and settled, just brings so much peace to me and so much joy. You can be settled in God's promises, God's grace, and God's hope to the point that you don't have to worry, you don't have to fear. So, in summary, everything we just learned in, a, in the way of living like there's no tomorrow, we're to be, seri- we're to be serious and watchful in prayer, <clears throat> we're to love fervently, to be hospitable, to serve others with what God has given us, we're to speak for God and speak things God wants us to speak, and to remember that the source and the purpose of our life is, always goes back to God. That is our lesson for tonight. Thank you to everyone who was here and for listening patiently. I hope these things will help you this week. I, I know we always need a constant refresher on our perspective. And I love what, what that song, Stand Up for Jesus, that was led, says in, in, the, in the fourth verse. It says, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day, the noise of battle. The next, the victor's song. That we're so close. It's just like today we're hearing this and this is going on, but tomorrow we're right there. Tomorrow it's a victory song. Let's get on with a victory train. Let's do this. And if you're not a part of that, that, that train going to heaven, you can be. You've heard a little bit of the word tonight. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can confess that he is your Savior. You can repent of your past life. Say, I'm going to go God's way now. I know who wins this game. I know who wins in the end. I'm going to be on his side. And you can confess him as your Savior. And you can be baptized to contact that blood of Jesus that saves us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.